Doubt is a cognitive process that the average individual experiences each day. Did I turn off the sink? Can I answer this question correctly? Am I qualified for this task? This level of indecision is generally inconsequential, but what if expressing doubt could cost someone their life? This question will be explored as I, Lily Sivko, along with my fellow investigators, Nico Horn, John Shaw, and Artie Topolis, uncover the mysteries surrounding a teenage boy, the murder of his father, a switchblade knife, and a possible trip to the movies. From Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, this is your Daily Dose of Demise, a podcast where we discuss murders ranging from the death of a feral cat to serial killers who have conquered the United States. We uncover the who, what, and why of these murders and expose exactly what happened during and after a sick, twisted criminal struck. This is our fifth installment, Slaughter in the Slums, where we analyze the details of a case surrounding a teenage boy accused of murdering his father. We are also proud to announce that this episode is brought to you by AT&T, where you can get $500 off the stunning iPhone 12 Pro Max when you trade in your iPhone 7 Plus or newer. With its incredible 12-megapixel triple camera sensor, the iPhone 12 Pro Max takes crystal clear photos to capture your most important and special memories. The truth of what occurred during a murder is like a confidential slip of paper hidden in a locked box. Lies and embellished testimonies obscure the truth of the case, like a thick coat of dust engulfing the box of sincerity. It is our job to sweep away the mountains of dust and lies, to unlock the box, and ultimately serve justice. After all, without the justice system, the world would be in shambles with murderers and crazed felons on the loose. Ultimately, a world without the justice system would be horrific. So, integrity and truthfulness must be prioritized while discussing a case of homicide. Our podcast and research team has spent weeks researching, analyzing, and gathering the details of this case to deliver the facts to you, our listeners, and we now present Slaughter in the Slums. Where were you, what did you see, and what were you doing at noon exactly two weeks ago? A vast majority of our listeners would not be able to accurately answer this question. After all, people forget about 50% of the information that they are presented with after one hour. 50%? Yes, 50%, and this increases to 70% after a day. After one week, however, 90% of the information that an individual was presented with will have disappeared into the depths of their mind. That makes sense because recollections of past events can never be flawless, but our research team has assumed the responsibility of separating the facts from the fancy. This case, which was heavily reliant on the memories of witnesses, began when a 19-year-old boy from the slums was accused of first-degree murder after his father was discovered on the floor of their tenement with a switchblade knife emerging from his chest. The defendant's alibi was that he was viewing a double feature at the movies, during the time of the murder, but he could not recall the movie titles, he did not have a ticket stub, and the employees who were present at the theater that night did not recognize him. That is true, but if the defendant snuck into the theater, this could explain his lost ticket stub and why the workers did not recognize him. It is also possible that the stress of the situation caused him to forget the movies that he viewed, or the fact that he was only asked to recall their titles during the trial months after the murder occurred. Wow, I never thought about it like that, but the defendant did possess an exact type of switchblade knife that was used to kill his father. Yes, but he claimed that he purchased it as a present for his friend. He also stated that it fell through his pocket while traveling to or from the theater. That could explain it, but what about the witnesses? 
Although the witnesses were confident in the defendant's guilt, reasonable doubt played a major role in their testimonies. The only witnesses who have lived to tell the tale of the murder are an elderly man living in a tenement directly under the defendants, a middle-aged woman from a neighboring apartment across the tracks of an elevated train, and a couple across the hall. After speaking with the elderly man and neighboring woman, our research team was able to gather that they vigorously believe in the defendant's guilt. Exactly. The woman states that she witnessed the murder firsthand, and the man believes that he heard the murder occur and witnessed the defendant fleeing the scene. The neighbors across the hall have also uncovered what they suppose to be a motive for the boy to kill his father. How does reasonable doubt play into this, however? Well, none of the testimonies in the case were perfect, so reasonable doubt exists about numerous pieces of evidence. For example, the timing of the elderly man's trip to his door, the fact that no fingerprints were present on the murder weapon or the door handles, and the woman's eyesight came into question while considering the details of this case. Initially, the conflict between the defendant and his father began when the neighbors across the hall heard an argument around 8 o'clock on the night of the father's death, and he hit the sun. That could have been a motive for why the boy wanted to kill his father. Since he, physically was, since he was physically abused by his father, he could have been pushed past his breaking point and finally snapped. Exactly. After all, months or even years of physical abuse causes considerable mental trauma and deterioration. This could have compiled with the defendant's access to a weapon and motivated him to kill his father. Is the elderly man's testimony completely reliable, however? Ten minutes after midnight on the night of the father's death, he was lying in bed and clearly heard the boy scream, I'm going to kill you, and the father's body hit the floor. He even swore under oath that he traveled to his door and witnessed the defendant fleeing the scene 15 seconds later. Well, one of the most significant pieces of information in the case is that the elevated train was passing the tenement during the exact time frame that the sounds were heard. The rumble of a train exerts a noise averaging from 125 to 140 decibels, which is deafening enough to ruin an individual's hearing or cause them to believe that they heard a non-existent noise. For comparison, a rock concert averages at 120 decibels, normal conversation is 60 decibels, and noises above even 85 decibels can cause trauma to the ears. Hmm, maybe the elderly man didn't hear the boy scream and the father's body drop after all. Yes, and it is also worth noting that even if the elderly man did hear the defendant threatening to kill his father, I'm going to kill you is a common expression that the average person exclaims while irritated. So the phrase does not prove that any intent to commit homicide existed. Well, that connects to the fact that the elderly man walked with two canes because of a previous stroke that left him disabled. It is extremely unlikely that he reached, to the, reached the door in that period of time, and it's even more improbable that he saw the defendant running downstairs because one singular light bulb hangs in the hallway where the staircase is located. Wow, the elderly man sure was confident in his testimony, but almost every aspect of it has a rebuttal. Maybe he wasn't telling the entire truth after all. Another major witness in this homicide is the woman from across the street. According to her testimony, she was having a hard time falling asleep on the night of the murder around 11 o'clock. She said that she was tossing and turning throughout the night. One hour later, she awoke and casually turned towards the window to witness what she believed to be the defendant stabbing his father. She observed that event through the last two cars of the passing elevated train, though. She may have only witnessed a blur of the defendant across the street because her vision would not have been perfect.
Yes, and her vision also would have been worsened because she was not wearing glasses. This woman clearly had indentations on the side of her nose where the glasses rest. Except on extremely rare occasions, nobody really wears glasses to bed, and it would be hard to tell who stabbed someone while watching through a train from across the street. Wow, her testimony was clearly full of inconsistencies. We can't forget about that crime scene, though. Not a single fingerprint was found on the door handles or the switchblade knife, and the murderer must have held the knife in an overhand fashion because it was plunged into the father downward. So, doesn't that prove that the murderer was sly and paid attention to detail while committing murder? Not exactly. The defendant was associated with the switchblade knife because he was an, an experienced knife fighter, and a sly murderer would never associate himself with the murder weapon. I never thought about it like that. So, we can't draw a conclusion about whether the boy would have made mistakes or committed a flawless murder. The absence of fingerprints paints him in a cunning light, but only an irresponsible murderer would have used a murder weapon that they were associated with. Maybe he was trying to confuse us? He has had years of experience with knife fighting, though, and knife fighters are trained to grip their weapons with an underhand hold. But forensic investigators stated that the knife was driven down and into his body. The defendant had so much expertise in knife fighting that the angle of the knife is extremely abnormal. Also, didn't the shop owner state in an interview that the knife was unique, one-of-a-kind, and extremely expensive? Yes, but an investigation revealed that he was selling copies of the exact same switchblade knife for $2. Every single switchblade knife in the shop had an identically sized blade and card handle. Hmm. So, he could have been framed because a weapon that cheap could have been purchased by almost anyone in the town. Maybe it was just a coincidence that he owned this exact same type of knife that was used in the murder, too. The murder weapon itself it just isn't significant enough to convict the defendant of murder. In the past, the defendant has repeatedly encountered the police after committing crimes. It is a recurrent stereotype that people have broken the law in the past or are more likely to commit separate violations again. Although it has been confirmed that the defendant previously stole a car, mugged someone, and was picked up by the police for knife fighting, these crimes are separate from the murder that is being tried for. Exactly. We can't stereotype the defendant based on his criminal record, since the murder of his father was unrelated to his past crimes. Bias must be eliminated overall for a fair trial to occur and justice to be served. Speaking of the trial, it astonishingly lasted for nearly a week. The 12 jurors were instructed to consider each piece of evidence and testimony that was presented in court and to declare the defendant as not guilty if they possessed even a minor amount of reasonable doubt. The fate of the defendant solely rested on the shoulders of a dozen jurors and discussions about the case. So although a testimony or piece of evidence may seem straightforward, there is always more to be uncovered and examined. I always believe that the brain was a remarkable organ, but this case just proves that it frequently makes mistakes. People who are positive about witnessing an event can still have their statement questioned or contradicted if they are stressed out or not wearing glasses. Well, although the case has been concluded, the fact remains that the father's murderer may still be on the loose, roaming the streets and searching for their next victim. Even if more evidence is discovered about this, this murder in the future, the defendant cannot be tried again as the Fifth Amendment prohibits double jeopardy or being tried for the same crime twice.
The jurors were confident in their decision, and reasonable doubt played a major role in this case, as, as a guilty verdict cannot be delivered if the jurors possess a considerable amount of doubt. Let's just hope that those jurors were right and that they didn't release a criminal. I agree. So thank you all for listening today and delving into the inquiries that arose during the examination of a brutal slaughter in the slums. The lockbox of truth has finally been unlatched, and the misconceptions that once surrounded this case have been swept away as we examine each testimony and piece of proof. We'd also like to graciously thank AT&T one final time for sponsoring this episode. Catch up with us next week here at your Daily Dose Demise, where we will dive into the tragic sudden death of a young Native American whose demise causes concern about whether family loyalty or the law must be prioritized. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.